I think there's a science to everything, at least in the sense that, you know, as a social scientist, I think that just because things are hard to study doesn't mean we shouldn't try to study them. This week, I speak to renowned psychologist and best-selling author Adam Grant, who is well-known for being recognized as Wharton's top-rated professor and one of the world's 10 most influential management thinkers. Adam is also the author of three New York Times bestsellers. You may have read one of his books, Forgive and Take, Option B, and Originals. He sold over a million copies. In this week's episode, we talk about how to strive for an extraordinary career, the science of becoming well-known, how to build an audience with no agent or publisher backing, what he learned from not investing in Warby Parker, the importance of sharing your work, training yourself to question the status quo and the current landscape of education. Thank you, Adam, for joining the show. My pleasure. Great to be here, Corey. So you're an organizational psychologist, a Wharton professor, New York Times bestselling author. When you were growing up, is this how you envisioned your life would play out? (laughs) Definitely not. I didn't even know what any of these jobs were. So I didn't know I was going to write. I didn't really know what professors did. I think if you had asked me what an organizational psychologist was, I would have said like, oh, is that somebody who helps you get your closet in order? (laughs) So no, didn't anticipate any of it. How did it happen? What did you think you were going to be when you grew up? I think my, my earliest memories were of wanting to be a baseball player and a basketball player. And then I think I went from there to thinking I was going to be a professional magician and then a springboard diving coach. And by the time I got to college, I realized that what I was really fascinated by across all the things that interested me was how we lead our lives and in particular, how we can improve the quality of life at work. And I had a job in college where I was uh, I was working for the Let's Go Travel Guides. And I started out selling ads my freshman summer. And then my, my sophomore summer, I got promoted to be the manager of this agency. And I had a, a seven-figure budget, and I got to hire and, and motivate a staff. And I spent almost all my, all my time on that job thinking about the, the people dynamics. And I, I wanted a job where I could do that all the time. And here we are. Hmm. And why do you think you were thinking about people dynamics in, during your first summer job? You know, were your parents psychologists? Or where do you think this came from? You know, I think those seeds were planted, but I didn't realize it at the time. I just thought, okay, I don't particularly know why I'm interested in this. You know, my, my dad was a lawyer, my mom was a teacher, and I, I found out once I picked grad school, actually, that I was, I was going to go, that my dad had been a psych major as an undergrad, and my mom had been a psych minor. And I grew up with this language that I just thought everyone used. Like, you know, I think when I was about 10, I knew what a self-fulfilling prophecy was. And I was stunned my freshman year in college when I read about that in, in a sociology article. And I was like, oh, maybe not everyone grew up this way. That's funny. And a follow-up question to that is there are plenty of, of organizational psychologists, but you're the top 1%. You're very well known. Was that always planned? Do you think there's a science to being known? I think there's a science to everything, in, at least in the sense that, you know, as a social scientist, I think that just because things are hard to study doesn't mean we shouldn't try to study them and understand them. Uh, and we, we could talk about what that might look like. Uh, certainly was not planned in my case. You know, what, what happened was when I was a freshman, I, I took a writing seminar my first semester in college on social influence. Uh, we had to take a writing seminar. We got to, you know, express topic preferences. And that was my first choice. And one of the books assigned was, was influenced by Robert Cialdini. And as somebody who'd always been a pushover, I was really fascinated not by how I could be more persuasive, but how I could defend myself against the Machiavellians out there. And 
I then took uh, intro psychology and the book was assigned again. And I, I was, I enjoyed it so much that I read it again. And that was kind of the gateway drug for me to see how useful psychology could be in everyday life. And so, you know, pretty quickly I was reading Finding Flow by Csikszentmihalyi. Uh, that spring, Malcolm Gladwell released The Tipping Point. And there was this whole genre of books that, you know, as, as somebody who was just learning about psychology, really, really helped me see how exciting and surprising and practical it could be. And, you know, then as, as I got deeper into the field, I forgot about that. And, you know, I, I went off to, you know, to get a doctorate and do my research and focus on that in teaching. And it wasn't until 2011 when I got tenure that I started thinking about how I could have a broader impact and writing a book on, uh, sort of my own. But it, it took, you know, the better part of a decade to, to come full circle and realize that I, I wanted to try to, to do what a mentor of mine called building a bridge between the ivory tower and Main Street. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, broadening that, that impact and getting that reach. What were some of the early steps that you took to, to reach, you know, more than just your students? So really the first thing I did was to sit down and write a book. And I, I think I did it totally backward because, you know, I think in, in, an, in a digital world, discoverability is non-existent when it comes to books, right? If, if you wanted to launch a book 20 years ago, all you had to do was write an amazing book which is now no easy task. But if, you know, if, if booksellers got excited about it, it would be in the front of Barnes and Noble and Borders and you'd be in great shape. Well, Amazon doesn't really have the, the equivalent of that, right? So you can write a brilliant book that no one ever finds out about. And so it's much easier to, you know, to build an audience and share your ideas through, you know, TED Talks, op-eds and other vehicles first before launching a book. I didn't know that. I also had no intention whatsoever of, you know, of, of doing this over and over again. I, I thought I was going to sit down, write a book, say what I had to say, and then go back to my job as, as I'd done it before. But what I did to start was, it actually started because a few weeks after I got tenure, a colleague of mine, Barry Schwartz, reached out and he asked if I wanted to write a book together. And I was, I was flattered. I was thrilled at the chance. He was one of my favorite collaborators. I loved his book, The Paradox of Choice. And I went in to talk to my undergraduate research lab. And my students said, you cannot write a book with someone else as your first book. You have to get your ideas out there. And they basically demanded that I had to do this and they wouldn't let me leave the room until I agreed. And I, they talked me into it. So I said, okay, I've just committed to these students that I'm going to write a book. What do I do? I started reaching out to colleagues who had written one. I got their advice on what not to do. And almost all of them told me they regretted it and I shouldn't do it. And that only motivated me more, of course. So then one of the best tips I got was to go through acknowledgement sections of books that I really liked and look to see which agents were referenced. And I saw the, a few of the same agents' names over and over again. And so then I, I started getting introduced to different literary agents and talking about my ideas with them. And then eventually I got to work with Richard Pine at Inkwell, who's extraordinary. And we spent the summer putting together a book proposal. And I got so excited about the proposal that I accidentally wrote a draft of the book. And I, it was like, it was about 102,000 words, maybe 103,000. And I sent it to him and I said, yeah, book proposal, here's a draft of the book. And he wrote me back and he said, I've read it. And this is not the book that you set out to write. And it's not the book that is going to move your readers the way you want to try to influence them. And, you know, when I, when I reread it, I had basically written it like I would write an academic research paper. And Richard said, don't write like you write research papers, write like you teach and I threw out 102,000 words and started over, and that became my first book, Give and Take. Wow. Wow. And let's talk a little about post the writing process and now, you know, building the audience. If you were just starting out fresh with no, you know, agent or publisher backing, 
what would you do to, to build an audience? How would you go about doing that? I think the, the place that I would probably start is I would figure out what I have to say that other people are curious about and where the best platform is to reach those people. I think there's, there's a trade-off early on where you can either piggyback on an existing platform and reach the audience that comes there, or you can take the, the higher risk, higher return strategy of building your own platform. And I see no, no reason why you couldn't try to do both and, and see how they, they play out. So, you know, I think I would say, if, you know, if you don't have an agent, I would start writing drafts of blog posts. I would, you know, post them on, on LinkedIn and Medium. I would probably, you know, start to figure out if you can get them, you know, in uh, in other people's, you know, space in some way, shape, or form. It might be, you know, plugging into a newsletter. It might be, you know, doing a guest blog post. And then I would also start, you know, building my own platform and seeing if it gains traction. Uh, but I don't think there's a there's a magic bullet here. I think that it generally requires a lot of experimentation uh, and. Someone we both know, Tim Urban from Wait But Why, uh, is a great example of this. So, you know, he, he, I think he wrote the most popular article on the entire internet, if you look at Facebook shares, five years ago. And it looks like just a bolt out of the blue. Like, you know, he went from nothing to suddenly having millions of fans. Reality is he spent about eight or nine years writing blog posts that didn't go anywhere, where he was refining his style and honing, you know, his original approach to putting stick figures, you know, in, in these like funny drawings, along with really interesting analyses of all sorts of weird science and human behavior topics. And I think that very often we don't see that that work behind the scenes, but I think that work is probably critical. In addition to that work, do you think there's a relationship between controversy and uh, innovation or controversy and spread? And, you know, the people that are coming and, you know, immediately to my mind right now are like Donald Trump and Kanye West. <laughs> um, and what, what do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, look, controversy is is an effective way to attract eyeballs. I don't know that it's an effective way to do what at least I aspire to do as a social scientist, which is to to get people to question their assumptions and to get them to be more data-driven in the way that they live their lives. I think there's a sweet spot for controversy where you're challenging conventional wisdom in such a way that that people are intrigued to learn more. And you're actually opening their eyes to evidence that they're not aware of. And I think that, you know, if you fall off the other side of that, you're basically putting clickbait out into the world. And I think that is a very, very thin tightrope. Right. If there was one thing that you could pinpoint that has contributed to, to your success so far as a psychologist, as a, as a professor, as an author, what would that be and why? Uh, it's always hard to find one thing. And I'm probably the worst person to ask. I have relatively little clue about what I've done that's actually worked. But I think I think one thing that I've gotten feedback on a lot is that people seem to appreciate the the attempt to to be data driven but animate the data with stories. I think there are a lot of great storytellers out there who use data conveniently, you know, in a confirmation bias driven way, you know, to tell the story they want to tell. I think there are also a lot of people out there are very clear about putting data out there, but they don't bring the data to life. And I think what I've, what I've found reaches an audience of, of thoughtful, curious people the most effectively is when you lead with, okay, what does the best evidence say about this question? And then you find stories to illustrate that evidence and, you know, make it memorable, make it intriguing, make it surprising. And I think the, the data have to lead the story, not the reverse. 
Got it. What do you wish you had started doing or done more of much early in your life, specifically actions or activities with compounding effects? I think I would have been less shy about sharing my work. I held back for a long time. So, you know, I started an organizational psychology doctoral program in 2003. I got tenure in 2011. I essentially said nothing outside of academic journals and the classroom between those those years, other than, you know, very, very occasional, like, you know, I have a study come out and, you know, there's like a, there's a press release and then, you know, some newspapers cover the study and, you know, I give a quote or two, but I didn't really make any effort whatsoever to put my own voice out there or to, you know, articulate my, whatever my novel and original insights were. And I, I don't regret the way that I did it because I feel like I got very lucky in the way that, you know, that, that I was able to, to build an audience and the, the timing that, that happened there. But I think I, I could have gotten up that learning curve faster. Uh, I think I, I could have probably chosen different topics to study and had some additional ideas earlier on. I found that communicating with the outside world uh, actually is where I get many of my best questions, right? When, when I get a question from a reader that tracks with something that students have been asking in the classroom, and then it's kind of the other side of something that a, a CEO is asking. You know, that, that actually is sort of how my second book, Originals, came to be. I had students asking, how do I speak up and have a voice and, and drive change in an organization when I'm at the bottom? And I have a bunch of executives and, and founders asking me, how do I fight groupthink and get more innovative ideas? I'm like, you both want the same thing. And we need to tackle this from both sides and figure out how to get better at championing new ideas and, and creating cultures that, that welcome them. And you know, I don't think I would have gone in that direction without uh, without the the feedback about what people were were struggling with and wanting to learn more about. And so I would say the more of that I could have done earlier, the better. That's a good segue into some of your students. Can you tell everyone the the Warby Parker story? Those founders were were your students, is that right? <laughs> yeah. So the the first class I taught at Wharton was the MBA core class on leadership and teamwork, uh, which I teach with three colleagues. And in each section, we have a subset of, of second year MBA students who are leadership fellows, which is basically kind of coaches and mentors the first years. They observe them in their teams. They give them feedback. And so the very first class I taught that August, it was 2009. Uh, there was a student named Neil Blumenthal and he said, I want to, you know, I want to start this company. We're going to, we're going to sell glasses online. And, you know, he asked if I was interested in, in being an early investor in it. And my wife and I really had not started doing any investing at that point. And I also thought it was kind of ridiculous to sell glasses online. And so I declined. And Neil and a few of his classmates started Warby Parker. And it's, of course, a billion-dollar company. And uh, we've learned a lot from that investment decision. <laughs> what, like, what, what, uh, so, what, so what have you learned? What, what did you fix in your kind of investing e equation post that experience? Well, I think there were a lot of people who, who didn't bet on them early. And, you know, I think that, that that revealed to me some systematic errors in judgment that, that a lot of, not just venture capitalists, but a lot of people make. So the first mistake that I made that I think is pretty common is I thought they weren't committed because they all had backup plans. So three of the four founders uh, had summer internships where they weren't even working on the business full time, even though they were planning to start it the next year between, you know, first and second year of business school. And they all took job offers full time just in case this didn't work out. And I'm like, hey, you guys aren't serious. And what I should have said is, hey, you guys are really smart and thorough in creating a risk portfolio that looks a lot like a balanced stock portfolio where we, we're going to do something that's a little bit wild and crazy and start this internet retail company. You covered your tracks to make sure that you're going to be okay if it doesn't work out. 
that's that's the kind of person I want to bet on. And in fact, uh, I was I, I later found uh, there's this great nationally representative study of, uh, of entrepreneurs, and it turns out that the ones who keep their day jobs uh, and start a company on the side when they do go all in are 33% less likely to fail than those who quit their jobs right at the start. And I think in part, the data suggests that it's because the ones who, who do it as a hobby first are more risk averse. And that actually means that they, they test the idea more thoroughly. They run better experiments and they're in a better position to succeed. So that was my first lesson. And then the, the other one for me was, uh, I, th- I just thought they were moving too slowly. You know, I, I looked and said, okay, you know, you're losing your first mover advantage. There are all these companies starting to do this. We don't even know if glasses can be sold online. And they, they just spent months and months. They couldn't even agree on a name. They had a, a spreadsheet that had over a thousand names in it that, you know, they had voted on and gotten feedback on. And I'm like, uh, yeah, you're, you're never going to get this thing off the ground. And again, the, the data show pretty consistently that more often there's a first mover disadvantage that, you know, it's, it's hard to create a market. It's much easier to, to piggyback and capture a market that somebody else has created. And, you know, they, they realized that branding was going to be their differentiator and they had to get the name right. And again, what I thought might be laziness or lack of, of focus was actually a sign of thoroughness. Interesting. And and now when you're you're meeting with founders, do you have a set of of questions that you ask them? Are you trying to suss anything out? A lot of the the investing that that I do now is with people I already know, so former students, colleagues that I've worked with, and I feel like that you know that's sort of a shortcut on diligence and on evaluation. But you know, I, I when I do invest in people who I either don't know well or you know, I feel like the idea is a little bit more uncertain. Uh, I found myself asking more about these dynamics than I would in the past. So, you know, one of the things I ask now is, okay, what are you going to do if, if this fails? And, you know, if they haven't really even thought about failure as a possibility, I think they're, they're either going to change the world or they're completely delusional. <laughs> Probably more likely the latter. Another thing that I like to ask is, uh, is borrowed from the pre-mortem technique uh, that Gary Klein popularized, which is to say, look, you know, if let's say you fail three years from now, uh, what do you think caused it? And it gives me a sense of what the risks are in the business up front. Uh, I found that to be a, a useful conversation to have, even if it's not going to influence my investment decision. It's something they should be discussing internally anyway to to prevent whatever that failure would be that they can anticipate. A third thing that I like to ask, which which I think is is pretty critical, is where's their access to new ideas going to come from? Because I think that you know pretty pretty frequently a founding team is you know limited in the amount of knowledge they have and you know the diversity of ideas they have access to. And so I want to know how well they leverage their network, how they're going to bring in talent who, you know, talented people who think about problems in different ways. And I also want to know that they're pretty comfortable pivoting if their their first idea doesn't work out. After you hire somebody, what are some of the things that you do to make that person more effective working with you? So one of the, the best things that I've tried lately is creating a user manual. So I originally got this idea from Adam Bryant. Uh, he, he wrote about it in his corner office column in The Times, and then we, we had talked about it. And since then, I've just seen all these people uh, swear by it. Uh, some colleagues at Bain, uh, Abby Falick wrote a great post on it. Uh, Leah Fessler and some others at Quartz had, had covered it and tried it internally. And uh, the basic idea was that like, when you get a new piece of technology, there's a user manual that comes with it, uh, or even with a car, right, to tell you how to work it. And people are at least as complex as technology, in some cases, much more so. And yet nobody ever gives us a manual for how to work with them. And so the idea was, you know, what if you had one of those? 
And originally people wrote their own. And then more and more I kept hearing, you know, it's actually more helpful if your team writes it for you because they see, they see your blind spots and they learn what brings out the best and worst in you. And so I decided to try it. I think right, I had actually just done it right before I saw you after recommending it for a few months, which is very backward. <laughs> but I, you know, I, I just heard so many great things about it that I, I felt like I felt confident recommending it as a good experience to go through. And the questions that I asked a couple of my colleagues were one, what brings out the best in me? Two, what brings out the worst in me? Three, what are my strengths and weaknesses? Four, what are my blind spots? And five, if tomorrow was your worst day working with me, what about my personality would help you work with me more effectively? Or what would you want to know about my personality to be effective with me? My colleagues sent me answers. And I would say about 30% of what I heard was completely new that I never would have thought of. And so now I'm ready to share it. Wow, that's great. I read that, I think in one of your books, and you did some research that people who use Firefox or Chrome browsers are, are better employees as they question the default browser and take you know, the extra effort to download a new one. What are some ways you think people listening to this can train or, or teach themselves to, to question the status quo? Yeah, Mike Hausman's study there was was so interesting. I was, you know, I was very surprised at first. I was like, why in the world would people who use Chrome or Firefox, you know, be be higher performers and less likely to quit? And we we ruled out a bunch of other explanations, like it's not a technical skill difference, for example. And it does turn out to be the case that on average, these are proactive people who don't just take the browser that came with their computer or phone, but they say, all right, let me look if there's something better out there. And I think life would be exhausting if you did that in every single decision that you make. But I do think it's it's worth taking a step back and saying, okay, you know, any given year, I should have three you know things that are pretty critical to my life that you know that I want to not just accept the default. And so, you know, an example of this that I've been uh, toying with recently is I feel like there's a there's a default approach to hiring that that drives me crazy, which is you go through job interviews. And then you bring people in if they've passed in the interview. And then, you know, you hope they do a good job. And I'm like, well, the evidence is pretty clear that the best way to figure out if you want to hire someone is to work with them. And so why not give them a tryout? And I've actually started doing that. So before I work with someone now, I I say, okay, uh, you know, I'm not going to go with the default. I'm going to say, here's, you know, instead of interviewing you, I'm just going to give you a little project like, here's an article I wrote, like write a, a Twitter headline for it. Or here's a topic I'm doing research on. Like, give me a, a paragraph on how you would explain this book. And it's, it's not because I want to outsource those tasks. It's because I want to figure out whether the people I'm considering working with have similar taste, whether they've internalized a particular way of thinking that would, you know, either build on my work or be complementary to my work. And that like, that was a great default for me to question. And I think that it's hard to say, you know, okay, here's how to know which defaults you should be questioning. But I would say that the way to get there is to look at the mistakes that you make over and over again. So for me, it was, gosh, not only keep hiring the wrong people, sometimes I pass on the right people. And so I have all these false positives and false negatives. Uh, The default is not working for me. What are the alternatives? Where else in your life uh, is that the case? Well, I think one of the others for me at the moment that I've been thinking a lot about is actually in the classroom. So I have taught a class for years, actually, since, since I started teaching. So more than a decade ago, I started teaching an undergrad class in organizational behavior. And I have always taught it twice a week for an hour and a half. And what drives me crazy about that is my class is heavily based on experiential learning. 
And so in the decision-making unit, you're actually representing a, a real organization and you have a bunch of information and you have to make a decision and then justify it to your team. And then you find out how you did relative to what the real decision makers chose. You know, when we do an organizational change unit, you have to lead a change and there's a whole simulation where you have to make choices and you get scored. And it's so hard to run these these exercises because they're really consuming and immersive. You know, I find that sometimes we run out of time, we don't get to debrief them in full. People, you know, who have missed Monday then, you know, can't show up on Wednesday. And I was just talking about this offhand uh, at the end of the, the last semester. And uh, one of one of my uh, MBA mentors, Jesse Spellman, uh, said, well, why don't, why don't you just teach it once a week for three hours? And it was this light bulb moment. <laughs> and I'm such an idiot because I've taught negotiations that way for years. And it never occurred to me that this class could be taught that way too. So I, uh, I put in the request. I said, I want to move my teaching to once a week for three hours. And I'm going to start doing that this fall. And I'm hoping it'll be much better. Nice. That's uh, that's funny. Um, and you, you work with a lot of students. What, what's, what's your advice to, to young people trying to figure out what they want to do with their lives? Oh, I, th- I mean, I think that's the wrong question, right? So I think the, the right question is, you know, what, what's the job where you're going to learn the most? And, you know, I think you want to break down learning into, into three elements. One is where the work is going to teach you knowledge and skills that you don't have, but you think are valuable. Two, you're going to be surrounded by people who you think you can learn a lot from, who you really admire from an expertise or ability standpoint. And three, you have a little freedom to shape your own learning. And you can decide, you know, as you figure out what you're interested in, what you find yourself curious about, uh, that, you know, you have the flexibility or the discretion to, you know, take on a side project to, you know, choose who you work with next. And and that way, you know, you're going to be learning in ways that are meaningful to you. That's probably the most useful advice that I might give. And, I don't think you can plan it out further than, than a first job if you're early career, because ideally you learn so much on that first job that it changes your thinking about where you want to go next. Do you think that last part of where you want to go next, like, do you think that's a time thing? Do you think after a couple of years, people should look up or if people think they're, they're not learning after two months, but then they, they might be learning in four months, like... I feel like millennials and, and our generation jump from job to job to job and kind of lack a little bit of patience. What's your take on that? Well, I, I think it's a double-edged sword. I mean, there, there is good evidence that if, if you want to get promoted, uh, one of the best ways to do that is to move organizations and jobs more frequently. And, you know, oftentimes you can, you know, you can get poached in a higher level job in a way that your organization may not promote you so quickly, which is a problem if that's your organization and you're doing a great job. But I think that the, you know, the flip side of that is, yeah, there's a lot of impatience. Many times I've taught at this point well over a thousand millennials, uh, most of whom I would say carry a persistent belief that the grass is always greener and are driven by this tremendous sense of FOMO to try everything. And I think that the, the best way to manage that is to know that when, you know, you're in the middle of a job that's not perfect, you're going to be tempted to look immediately. And if you plan for that in advance and say, okay, what's a reasonable window that I feel like I can justify on my resume and where I've really given this job and this organization a chance? Uh, if you plan that up front, you can say, okay, I'm putting a reminder, you know, nine months from my start date uh, to start thinking about next steps. And until then, I'm just going to put it aside and not worry about it. And then when the reminder pops up, I'm going to take that as a license to start exploring, knowing that most likely I'll have at least a year, you know, at this organization under my belt. And, you know, again, I think it's, it's, there's not a right answer to how often those reminders should pop up. I think the, the key is to, to have them planned out up front so that you don't get tempted to jump ship too soon. 
And, and let's talk a little bit about college. Do you think college and higher education will look similar to what it looks like today in the next five years, 10 years, 20 years? Or do you think we'll see some pretty large changes? You know, I, I've had a really hard time answering that question. I think, you know, a few years ago, the, the big narrative was, oh, the future of education is online. This is your world, Corey, not mine. But I have not seen online education in any way yet substitute for, you know, for face-to-face learning. And in, in fact, it, it seems to be more useful to supplement than it does to replace. Uh, so, you know, I guess I'm a skeptic in, you know, in, in thinking that education is going to change dramatically in the near future. I think probably the biggest change that, that we can be confident in is that we're going to have to change the way that, that people learn because skills are becoming obsolete at a faster rate than they did before. And, you know, if, if all of the gloom and doom stories you hear about artificial intelligence have even a kernel of truth to them, at minimum, we're going to have more and more jobs automatable or outsourceable or both than we did before. And, you know, we, we won't have as much time to transition as we did from, you know, the, the horse to the car. I think that if that's the case, that means people are going to need to be able to update their skills uh, and, and reskill much more frequently than they did in the past. And so that means that increasingly, you know, especially higher education should not be about the knowledge that you gain in your head. It should be about the skills you gain to continue learning. And so if I were going to make one big change, both to, you know, to primary and secondary education, but also to higher education, I'd say what we really need is we need to teach people how to learn so that whatever situation they find themselves in, if, you know, if the, the job they thought they were an expert in no longer exists, they're in a position to, to prepare themselves for whatever they want to do next. Let me turn that back around on you. What do you think? What do I think? I, I think education, I think, will change in the next 5, 10, 20 years. I don't think my kids will be going to college, but I do agree that I haven't seen anything totally take place, totally supplement, replace uh, universities, but uh, people are learning from YouTube and podcasts, and more and more people are becoming self-taught, and what Elon Musk is doing with his school, I think, is uh, pretty interesting. And yeah, I, I think it it will change fast. I don't think it'll be replaced, though. I think there'll just be other alternatives. But yeah, we will see. I will be very curious. Very curious. Uh, so this is a, a controversial topic. What's something controversial today that, that you think will be commonplace tomorrow? Oh, uh, there's so many different domains to consider that in. I mean, one that I've been thinking about a lot, which I think affects both the, the workplace and education, is... I would say there's a huge controversy right now about what responsibility employers have for their employees. And, you know, okay, so as we go to an increasingly mobile workforce that's also flexible and maybe doing multiple jobs, uh, if I'm in the gig economy, you know, do, do I owe you anything if you work for me, right? If I'm Lyft or Uber, for example, you know, should I give you benefits, healthcare, retirement, et cetera? And I think there's a huge controversy around it. I think it's going to become completely irrelevant because you look at like one of my favorite startups that I advise is Guideline, which, you know, has a portable 401k. And if you look at that, there's just no reason for an employer to offer a 401k if you can carry it with you, right? And any employer can contribute to it. And, you know, you can even figure out what percentage of the total hours or income that, you know, that constitute your job, which is really a bunch of gigs, uh, does each employer take, and then they could contribute to a common account. I think, you know, that, that debate is just going to be solved by, uh, by something that ought to be in a blockchain. <laughs> we'll see. 
Hmm. What else do you think is people are uh, kind of arguing about or disagreeing about today that, that you think will be pretty normal in the near future? I think in politics, we're going to get to a point pretty soon where we have everyone in the United States, and it'll probably happen sooner in, in many other developed countries, recognize that ranked choice voting is unquestionably the way to go. Uh, it's the only way to give third party candidates a real chance uh, and have people who vote for them, you know, not throw away their vote. Uh, and it's also much more fair if, if we have four candidates running for office at any level and, you know, we you get to rank them from favorite to least favorite. And then you go through and you drop the person who had the least votes and then you immediately get to run that again. Uh, then, you know, people can be careful to to rank the person they believe in, but also make sure that they're voting with a veto, so to speak. And I think it's shocking that that is not already the policy in every country in the world. What are some of the things that you do in your life to make sure that you're always improving and growing? There are a few things that I do that I, I found helpful lately in particular. The first one is I did a little survey for my, my newsletter that I've been I've been running this for a few years now. And for a while, I was just you know, circulating articles I was I liked with little comments on them and try to share mostly other people's work and a little bit of my own. And I did a, a reader survey with my newsletter team about what they were interested in. And what they wanted, it turned out, was, was to hear more from me. And I was like, ah, oh, this is not about me. You know, I'm like trying to promote ideas, not myself. But uh, one of the suggestions that I loved was to have a, a Q&A feature. And so we, we launched this little feature called Wondering. And lo and behold, uh, some of my best ideas each month come from picking the questions that I've, I think are really interesting and then thinking about them, doing some research on them and writing some responses. And, you know, at first I thought, oh, this is, you know, this is going to be of questionable value to anyone. I don't know who's going to read it uh, or if anyone's going to benefit from it. And even if no one reads it, I found it immensely useful to know what people are asking and wondering about. And then it's been so helpful just to, to have a, an excuse every month to, you know, to just, you know, either rant or, or pontificate about something that I haven't thought enough about. Uh, so that's, that's one mechanism I love. So the second thing I did was uh, last year, I, I set out to create a podcast with the TED Talks team called Work Life. And for the past five years, I've, I've basically been invited into organizations to tell them things that I largely already know. And I, I didn't feel like I was learning enough doing that you know, like giving talks on the same topics over and over again and hearing a lot of the same questions back. So the idea for the podcast was to, to reverse that and say, what if I invite myself in to, to workplaces that I've never explored before and I get to learn something and then share the, the ahas on the back end? And that's been a blast. But I've also found that, you know, I, there's like, I'm still limited by what I am most curious about, right? So I tend to gravitate toward certain kinds of organizations. I'm really intrigued by highly creative workplaces. I'm also, you know, limited by the kinds of questions that I think to ask. And so I've actually found it immensely valuable to do things like have a conversation like this with a really thoughtful interviewer who asked me questions I would never think about. And then sometimes I realize I actually have a point of view on that. And that turns into an op-ed, uh, which is really fun. So those are, those are some of my favorite steps lately. That's awesome. And who are some of the people that you look up to, that you learn from, that are your mentors? And can you talk a little bit about some of the things that you've learned from, from those people? So I've felt less and less like mentors are valuable, in, at least in the kind of work that I do. What I love having is a support network and a challenge network. Right. The, the support network being the people who, you know, provide encouragement and show enthusiasm. And, you know, they're a big source of motivation, right? They're like, Hey, when is your next book coming out? I'm like, ah, I got to write another book one day. 
And, uh, you know, the challenge network is the people who, when I do that stuff, uh, and, and put my work out for feedback, you know, tear it apart to try to make it better. Uh, and I love that. I don't consider any of them mentors. One, because I think we're peers and we try to help each other in these ways. And two, like they're, they're not, it's not like I'm going to the same person for advice over and over again. It's much more that I'm, you know, trying to assemble a diverse group of people for different kinds of problems and, and get their feedback. And so, you know, I have, there's, there's a core group of them that I've found really helpful. So there, um, there are two people who work closely with me in Wharton People Analytics, Reb Rebelli and Grace Cormier, who read a lot of my first drafts. Uh, we bounce ideas back and forth. They've been great. My, my agent, Richard Pine, uh, I've got some incredible former students, Lindsay Miller and Justin Berg, who, you know, are often my best sources of ideas and also, you know, some of my most radically candid sources of, of criticism. And then I, I have a lab. Uh, where my undergraduates meet when I'm working on a big project and they give feedback on early book chapter drafts on podcast concepts. And uh, they're a great audience because they know enough about my work to know what they found interesting. And they've also spent enough time with me to know that one of the best ways to gain status in my eyes is to just criticize me in a really compelling way. So <laughs> that that becomes a source of constant uh, provocation, hmm. shall we say. And I want to ask a question from the Twitterverse. We, one person said, how can givers, especially agreeable givers, learn how to set better boundaries and say no to giving when it takes away from their potential and productivity? Oh, uh, I think I think you have to be clear about how you're trying to have an impact. So, you know, if you want to help others, you want to think about who you're trying to help. Are there certain groups of people or certain individuals that, that matter most to you? How you're trying to help. So what are the most unique and distinctive contributions you can make based on either the knowledge and skills that you have or the areas that you want to master? And then when do you want to help? Uh, you know, are there particular times in your schedule when it's not distracting? Uh, I've, I've actually tried to create kind of a giving day where, uh, you know, I'll hold all my office hours stacked together one day a week when I'm on campus. And, you know, that's kind of a student focused day. And then other days I have less engagement with students, but I'm able to get into flow doing, you know, more research or writing or data analysis. And I think that that turns out to be really helpful. And the more proactive you can be about setting goals around if, if you know who, how, and when you're trying to help, it's a lot easier than to, to figure out when an incoming request fits and when it doesn't. And I think you, you want to be clear also about who are the people that enjoy helping in the ways that you don't, because sometimes you can field each other's requests. Uh, so I found that I really dislike giving career advice. I don't feel comfortable telling people what they should do for their jobs, especially if I don't know them well. And I have a few colleagues who like it's their miscalling basically, right? If they could, if they could do their careers over, they would be career coaches. And so when somebody has a particularly thorny challenge on a career dilemma, I will sometimes ping it over that way. And then in exchange, you know, these people know that I love sharing data on work and psychology. And so whenever they get a, have you ever seen a study on, they send it my way. And we, we feel like we each get to do more of the helping that we enjoy. Hmm. And on that front, what kind of studies have, have you seen around making hard decisions where, let's say there, there are two really good decisions to make, but you're not sure which one to go with? Do you have any tactics like regret minimization or anything of that nature? Uh, I doubt I have anything novel that has not been covered in one of the great books out there. So let me start with those and then I'll add a point that's related to one of them. So Thinking Fast and Slow, Danny Kahneman, uh, Paradox of Choice, Barry Schwartz, 
decisive by Chip and Dan Heath would be some pretty good places to start on decision making. Danny Kahneman, though, has a great story. He, he told me once that he was, I guess, after he won his Nobel Prize, uh, he was asked by a reporter, you know, as, a, as probably the world's leading expert on decision making, how do you make tough decisions in your life now? And Danny said, well, it's very simple. I narrow it down to two options and I label one heads, the other tails. I flip a coin and then I observe my own emotional reaction to the coin toss. And if I don't like it, I've learned what my preference is. And then I flip again until I get the result I wanted. Mm -hmm. And I think that what, what that says to me is that, you know, very often we have implicit preferences uh, that we haven't necessarily been able to articulate yet. And sometimes it's helpful to have a forcing mechanism to figure out what that is and then do the work to, to try to, you know, get to the bottom of, okay, is that preference an intuition that's based on any valid data or analysis? Or, you know, is it actually a pattern I built up over experience in other situations that doesn't apply to the current dilemma? And, and what's something right now that you know you should do, but you haven't done yet? Ooh, I just realized this today. I'm not happy with the way that I've been giving advice and I need to change it. So when people ask me for advice, I did not realize for years that I was doing this until one of my students told me that I was a logic bully. And I was like, what? What's a logic bully? And she's like, well, you, I asked you for advice on this big decision I had to make about whether to stay in my job or go back to school. And you essentially convinced me that I had to do the opposite of what I wanted to do. And I didn't feel like I had an alternative because you just shot down all of my objections. And I was like, good, that's my goal. But it's not my goal. What, what my goal was is it was very clear she was leaning in one direction. And I wanted to make sure that she considered it in a balanced way. So I made the strongest possible case I, I could make for the opposite. And then I ended up tilting her in that direction, which was not my goal. So the thing I should be doing that I'm not is when somebody asks me for advice, what I should be doing is not even giving a recommendation. And instead saying, look, you know, I'm assuming you're asking for advice because you want an outside view. And, you know, I, as a, as an organizational psychologist, I, you know, know something about decision making that could be applicable here. Here's how I would think about this. Here's the process I would use. Here's some criteria that I, I would consider. Now, taking that into account, where do you come down? And then let them come to the recommendation themselves. And I need to start doing that now. Just start handing out coins and just have people flipping them. <laughs> and now I've made a public commitment to it. Thanks for making me do that, Corey. Yeah. I'm uh, stuck. <laughs> well, cool. Well, thank you so much, Adam, for doing this. I know you didn't have to. I, I really appreciate it. You are um, very welcome. 